Well, as a kid, I remember how much I liked the story of Lazarus. It was a really good story for kids' church, right? It has so much drama. You have a man that dies. You've got weeping sisters. You've got a stone, right, that has to be rolled away. And then it's this guy that looks like a mummy coming out of the tune. After everybody has collectively shouted, Lazarus, come forth, right? It was great drama. And you always wanted to be Lazarus because you wanted to be the guy that gets to walk out of the tomb, right? But not to be outdone, I remember uh, if you were one of those that got to grow up in the early days of contemporary Christian music, you probably can't approach this passage without hearing Carmen, right? And this nice story song that he does, and Lazarus, 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 come forth, right? This is how I view John 11 for so long. It's just this very upbeat story of miracle that a dead man lives, It gives us hope that we, too, will experience resurrection in life. And as I looked at this chapter, however, as I was approaching the fifth week of Lent, I had to ask myself, but what does this story have to say to us in the midst of our Lenten journey? A season where we're supposed to be experiencing repentance and reflection. A season that Father Kevin reminded us a few weeks ago was this spring cleaning of the soul. A season that this year we're also asking the question, well, how does this help us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? And I've wrestled long and hard with this passage, and what I have found has, for me, been very transformational. And I hope that the journey that we take tonight through John 11 will lead you in the same direction. So let's start first with just understanding the story itself. The story of Lazarus is only told once in the Bible, and it's here in John. It may seem a little bit surprising because so often the big miracles of Jesus tend to show up in all of the Gospels. But as you look at the book of John, you realize that he put this story here with great intentionality. In chapter 1, John opens his Gospel by declaring that the word God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That God becomes one of us through the person of Jesus Christ and as Jesus experiences the world as both fully human and fully God. You see all of these stories then in John that show what Jesus is doing, what he's saying, and when you get to chapter 20 at the end, John kind of recaps everything in his gospel by telling us that all of these things that Jesus did, there were so many more things he could have included, but these specific signs were included. Things like turning the water into wine, healing the official son, Uh, feeding the 5,000, healing the blind beggar, and in this case, raising Lazarus from the dead, they were all included for the express purpose that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, we would have life in his name. The word became flesh, and we are called to believe in him. So as we approach John 11... We have to use this lens and ask the question, how does this story help us to recognize Jesus as Messiah and believe in him? Well, at the very beginning of our story, when Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick, he makes a very explicit statement that Lazarus' sickness, much like the blind beggar in John 9, this story is going to reveal God's glory and bring Jesus, the Son of God, glory. And so we're clued in now that at the very beginning, we need to start watching for how God's glory is 
going to be displayed. Now, we might expect that because he says Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, that he means that Lazarus is going to be healed. And perhaps that's what the messengers who rush back to Mary and Martha to say, hey, we've talked to Jesus. He said it's not going to end in death. Maybe that's what they were thinking. But as we read, the sickness does lead to Lazarus' death. And only when Jesus is sure of this fact does he go back to Bethany. And so the tension in this story is rising as we continue to look for answers to the question, how is God's glory going to be displayed? And what is this going to tell us about Jesus? Well, when Jesus gets close, Martha hears he's coming, and so she rushes out to meet him. And as she sees him, these words just come tumbling out. I think they're words that probably she and Mary had been saying to one another over and over. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And I think there is so much emotion in what she says, emotions that aren't foreign to us as we experience the death of somebody that we love. Confrontation. If you had actually come, we wouldn't be going through this. Hurt. But I thought you loved Lazarus. Why heal everybody else and not him? Abandonment. We called for you, Lord. You didn't come. Confusion. But you said he wouldn't die. Why didn't you stop it? Lament. He's dead, Lord. If you had gotten here, you could have done something about it, but it was just too late. He's dead. Now Jesus turns to Martha, and and he says, well, your brother will rise again. And I almost read it as if it's the way we would have received that, right? This is platitude, right? Because listen to what she says. Yeah, I believe he'll rise someday in the resurrection. Someday future. Yeah, yeah, thank you. He's gone to heaven. Woo! Right? But then Jesus makes another explicit statement, something that is suddenly unexpected. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? To which Martha boldly responds, I believe you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Boom, right? Mic drop moment. It could not be more clear. John has set out to prove that Jesus is the Messiah through the story of Lazarus, and as if we're in any doubt as to why the story is included, John quotes Martha making this very declaration, Jesus is Messiah. But for Martha, I'm not sure she totally understood what this means. She's still in the throes of her grief and her shock over Lazarus' death, and she can only hold out hope that someday he will experience resurrection. But we know the story is not over, and so the suspense is still building, and yet we're given another hint about what to look for. Something about how Jesus is going to respond to Lazarus' death will prove that Jesus is Messiah, Son of God. And it just might have to do with something about resurrection. Now, after Martha and Jesus' conversation, Mary comes onto the scene, and she greets him with that same greeting of lament. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And she falls at Jesus' feet, weeping. And it says that all the people that had gathered to comfort the women and to mourn with them have come out, and they're all standing around Jesus, and they're all crying. And this passage says Jesus gets mad. Well, that's unexpected, right? 
Our English translations like to soften the Greek here and say, well, Jesus was troubled or he was deeply moved. But if you look at the Greek, it's much more forceful. It's using words that express anger, almost like an animal snorting. Imagine it, ah, right? He's deeply vexed and troubled. And then the text says that before they even get to Lazarus' tomb, Jesus weeps. Again, unexpected. Or is it? Why is Jesus so angry and sad? He is angry and sad because he is staring into the face of our last enemy, death. See, death wasn't supposed to be. Death entered into the world because of our sin, because of our failure. Esau Macaulay observes, there is nothing natural about death. It is an alien intrusion into the good world God created. My mom was a hospice nurse for many years, and she watched people die. And she has said to me more than once, dying is hard because we weren't made to die. We were made to live. And so as Jesus stares into the face of death, he is angry and sad. But here is why this shouldn't be so surprising. As word become flesh, as fully human and fully God, Jesus looks at our last enemy and he responds with the fullness of who he is. As fully human, Jesus looks into the face of death and he is angry at the toll that it exacts. He is disturbed by the grief and the pain that people experience because of this great enemy. And he's moved to share in that grief saddened by our tears, by the fissure and the brokenness that we experience in the midst of death, and he cries. And today, if you're in the midst of grief, you're missing your, your spouse, your son, your daughter, your friend, know that Jesus understands. He enters into that grief, and he weeps with you. But know also that it's fully God. He did something about it. He destroyed it. He overcame it but he overcame it at a cost. You see, we read in John 10 that Jesus had had to flee Judea because people there had tried to stone him. And so in chapter 11, when he tells the disciples that he's going back to Judea to see Mary and Martha, the disciples protest. But they just tried to kill you. You just barely escaped. And when Jesus says, no, but I'm going back, right? What's Thomas's reply? Well, let's go. We might as well all die together, right? Jesus' return to Bethany is at great personal risk. And we find at the end of the story that after Jesus raises Lazarus, this miracle is the straw that broke the camel's back. It says that the chief priests and the Pharisees call a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and basically they say, this guy's getting too popular, and he's taking away our power. And so verse 53, from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. Raising Lazarus set Jesus' own death into motion. So as Jesus stares into Lazarus' tomb and he calls Lazarus to come forth, we're not just given a preview about what resurrection might look for, uh, like for us in the future because we believe in Christ. In this moment, Jesus, is, in a sense, is also staring into his own tomb, knowing that he has just set into motion his death. So what have we learned? By raising Lazarus, Jesus displays his glory unequivocally by showing that our greatest enemy 
an enemy that came into the world because of our failure, because of our sin, is no match for Jesus. Jesus is Lord of life. He is Lord over death. And as is revealed later in Revelation 1.18, Jesus is the living one who died. Look, he says, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. And in a world where we sometimes wonder if there's justice for black men and women who continue to be killed because of the color of their skin, for babies who are aborted because there might be a possibility of a genetic defect, for people who are killed in war, for the 45,000 who were killed because of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, for my 41-year-old friend who just recently went into the hospital because she had some numbness and headaches and died two weeks later because of an aggressive brain tumor leaving behind a husband and three teenagers, for family and friends who die because of cancer, dementia, heart attacks, accidents, even old age, Friends, Jesus looks into our experience with death. He weeps with us. He is angry at this enemy. And he does something about it. He gives his life in order to take the ultimate sting out of death and the ultimate victory out of the grave. So what does this mean for us? How does this help us in our Lenten journey and in the spring cleaning of our soul? When I walk out of here and I'm confronted with temptation, how does this story of Jesus raising Lazarus say something to me about how I say no to sin and yes to Jesus? And the key, friends, I think is in what Jesus says to Martha in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? I want to unpack for just a moment why I think that this will help us have a life-changing moment when we understand what this really means. You see, when Jesus comes to Martha, it had to be confusing for her because this wasn't what it was supposed to be, right? Lazarus wasn't supposed to die, was he? Well, if you read the beginning of John 11, you learn, yes, actually he was. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Sometimes we read this almost like, well, although Jesus loved them, he stayed where he was. I think the New Living Translation does it. But when you look at the Greek, it says Jesus loved them, and so he stayed put. Or as one translation says it, now Jesus loved them, therefore he stayed put. And it is only after Jesus declared Lazarus is dead, verse 14, that Jesus comes. So when he encounters Martha, she's thinking something has gone terribly wrong. And she's trying to hold on to some future resurrection hope. But Jesus accepts the reality of Lazarus' physical death. And then he shifts the whole story by declaring, I am the resurrection and the life. And in this statement, Jesus pulls the future into the present and he makes it not some ethereal event but he makes it about himself as a person and he says I am the resurrection and the life and he explains what he means the one who believes in me will live even though they die resurrection and whoever lives by believing in me will never die life right this was John's point of his gospel that by believing in Jesus we may have life 
problem is that we sometimes keep it as this kind of pie in the sky. Someday we have life. Someday there is resurrection. But pie in the sky promises don't make us confront the reality of death or the reality of life. In our story, Lazarus dies. It is a reality. And in our story, Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. This too is a reality. But then he asks the question that I think for us tonight is the question, do you believe this? If we're really honest, I'm not sure that we do believe this because I'm not sure that we have fully come to grips with the reality of death or life. Now, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but anybody remember the movie Kindergarten Cop? Right? So in the movie, you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's this rough and tough police detective, and he has to go undercover as a uh, kindergarten teacher. He's trying to intercept this dangerous drug dealer who's figured out where his wife and son, who had been in protective custody, are, and he's trying to, you know, save the day. So on his first day, the principal takes him down to the kindergarten classroom, and he's gonna, she's going to introduce him. And when she tells him that the regular teacher isn't there, this little boy pipes up and he says, did she die? The principal responds, no, Lowell, she had to see someone. Did they die? No, Lowell, everyone dies, you know. Right? And we think this poor macabre child, like you're not supposed to be that fixated on death as a kindergartner. And what is her response? Oh, I know, but not for a long, long time. We don't like to think about our own mortality. For some of us, we're afraid of death, so we ignore it as much as possible. For some, we know in some abstract way that we're going to die, but we don't really live like we believe it. Our culture bombards us with the illusion that we can paint over death or cheat death. David De Silva in The Sacramental Life observes that many of us try to push our own mortality from our consciousness and insulate ourselves from the awareness of death. Our society, he says, conspires in this avoidance by moving away from the expectation that people will die at home with their families, to the assumption that they will die in more peripheral spaces like hospitals, hospices, and nursing homes. Even the cosmeticians, he says, try to make the corpse appear as lifelike as possible so that we will not see death as it is. Pastor and author Tim Keller talks about his own confrontation with death when he was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And he says, A belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Despite my rational, conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a remarkably strong psychological denial of mortality. Instead of acting on Dylan Thomas's advice to rage, rage against the dying of the light, I found myself thinking, what? No, I can't die. That happens to others, not to me. When I had actually said these outrageous words out loud, I realized that this delusion had been the actual operating principle of my heart. When we ignore our impending deaths or operate out of the fear of death, we can find our priorities get mixed up. We can easily get caught up in the things of life. We make heaven out of earth. We become enslaved to the things of earth and the bondage that comes when we are enslaved to temporal reality. It can make sin not seem so, so bad or consequential. We always have tomorrow to change, right? 
We don't see overwork as a problem. Well, there's always tomorrow. We may begin idolizing the wrong things and seeking after fame, fortune, and power. We're always reaching and grasping for something future, leaving us discontent in the present. Someday we'll fill in the blank. De Silva says it this way, fear of death drives us to engage in futile attempts to defeat death and deny our mortality. Sometimes this takes the form of becoming fixated upon making our mark so as to give ourselves an illusion of permanence. Sometimes we gain for ourselves that illusion by building larger homes, acquiring more goods, displaying our wealth and significance. Sometimes we deflect our attention to trying to control our own lives and the lives of those around us. Fear of death blinds, binds us in slavish pursuits that can neither stave off death nor truly provide authentic and full enjoyment of what life we have. 16th century Protestant theologian John Calvin says, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. Responding to this, Keller says, death is an abstraction to us, something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. But then he notes, for the same reason, our beliefs about God and an afterlife, if we have them, are often abstractions as well. If we don't accept the reality of death, we don't need these beliefs to be anything other than mental ascents. A feigned battle in a play or a movie requires only stage props. But as death, the last enemy, became real to my heart, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless. The beauty of what and John, or Jesus does in John 11 is that he not only brings us face to face with the reality of death, we are going to die. He does something about death and he invites us to embrace the reality of resurrection and life, a reality that we only experience because of Jesus' own death. And this is what is revolutionary for us. You see, death is the elephant in the living room that we try not to notice, let alone invite center stage. But De Silva notes, Christian faith refuses to cooperate in this conspiracy of silence. Death is at the center of our proclamation, the death of Jesus, and the way that this death has transformed all deaths. Our tradition, he says, makes us face our fears about death instead of repressing them. Our scriptures bring the topic out into the open so they can no longer possess us in secret and control us subconsciously. Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ died to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And by dying and rising again, De Silva says, Jesus shows that the seeming finality of death is really an illusion a smokescreen that Satan uses to keep us afraid of losing our lives precisely so that we will not give them away and discover the fullness of life that God has for us in Christ. When we believe in our own mortality and in Jesus as resurrection and life, we are freed to live this life as God intended it. By taking the sting out of death and the victory out of the grave, Jesus isn't just addressing our grief when someone we love dies. 
He is taking the sting out of our own deaths and the victory out of our own graves. Look at the reading we had tonight from Romans 8, starting in verse 9, and I'm going to read all the way into verse 12. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Since Christ lives in you, even though your body will die because of sin, your spirit is alive because you have been made right with God. It is not someday you will live. It's present reality. Your spirit is alive. Paul says the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And here's what we didn't read tonight that I want to read for you. And he says, and so, dear Christian friends, you have no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. That is why resurrection and life matters so much. Again, De Silva says one of the greatest gifts of our Christian faith is that it enables us to look honestly and courageously at our own deaths so that we can live more authentic lives, free of the distortions that come from repressing our own mortality, and free of the regrets that inevitably follow when death shatters our illusions. If we really believe Jesus is resurrection and life, then we are no longer obligated to this world, the things of this world, or what our sinful nature would urge us to do, because death has no more sting. Death cannot rob us or cheat us out of anything. The collector, the fifth week of Lent, asked God to grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. That among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. So often we experienced FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. We struggle to obey God because we think he's robbing us of life, of experiences, of certain joys and freedoms, that somehow he's holding something back from us. But in embracing our mortality, we are going to die. And in truly believing that Jesus is resurrection and life, we find that death is put into relief for what it really is, a smokescreen that Satan uses to keep us afraid of losing our lives, precisely so that we will not give them away and discover the fullness of life that God has for us in Christ. When we truly believe Jesus is resurrection and life, then our life comes back into focus, giving us a true sense of what matters and what doesn't, of where life is to be found and where it isn't. When we turn good things into ultimate things, when we make them our greatest consolations and loves, when we make heaven out of earth, Keller says all of these things will necessarily disappoint us bitterly. However, on this fifth week of Lent, Macaulay reminds us that the life God offers is materially better in every sense of the word than the life the world gives us. Because God is the one who created all things and has oriented reality toward the good, the true, and the beautiful. Friends, we are mortal, and Jesus is resurrection and life. The question is, do you believe this?